0: it's very difficult to turn on and off again the world unless you have some sort of biblical powers
1: what's up everybody thanks for tuning in to beam radio okay so hello and welcome to this week's episode of beam radio i am sophia benedetto and i am joined today by co-hosts alex kumos howdy howdy welcome alex and happy belated birthday
2: thank you thank you
1: you're welcome as well as stephen nunez Hello. And For our listeners who can't see Steven right now, you should know that he does have his Mohawk back if anybody was concerned about the state of his hairstyle. Um, We do have some really exciting guests for you guys today. I will hold off on introducing them just for a moment. I will let Steven, our main host for this week, do those honors. But before we move on, as usual, I'll give a shout out, a big thank you to our sponsor, Groxia, which our listeners know is career fuel for programmers. We always encourage you guys to go and check out what's going on over there. I believe they've been doing some stuff with Livebook, which means that they're probably also working with NX. So if you're interested in any of the very, very exciting things happening in that space in the Elixir community, definitely go ahead and check out some of those classes. All right, with that, I'm gonna pass it over to Stephen, our main host for today, who's gonna to let us know what we'll be talking about, who we'll be talking with, and maybe so much more.
0: All right, I'm really, really excited. So on episode 27, I, we had an Elixir show and tell. Uh, companies doing really cool things with Elixir, nerves, uh, just all all great things being, one of the the uh, projects I brought up was Bowery Farming. So Bowery Farming is a uh, indoor vertical farm that runs a ton of Elixir. Uh, I was incredibly excited when they reached out to me. Uh, I immediately jumped on a chance to get them on the on the show. So without further ado, I want to introduce Kevin McNamee and Nick Sanford from uh Bowery Farming. How are you guys doing?
3: Doing well. Thanks for having us. We're really excited
4: to be here. Fantastic. Longtime listener. Uh, very happy to be on the show.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so of course, we're going to dive into all things beam over at, at Bowery, um, the journey for uh choosing Elixir, why it's great, what the challenges are. Um, but we always like to start out a little bit about your Elixir journeys. Um So I'm curious to hear, uh, we'll start with Kevin. What was sort of your journey to get to Elixir? How'd you you wind up there? Uh, I think you also have an interesting programming story. How'd you get into programming?
3: Yes, so I do have an interesting programming story and into Elixir. Um, So uh, just like uh, Sophie and uh, and, uh, Stephen was involved, um, I got into programming. Uh, in 2012, after, you know, a a short stint in broadcast TV sales, which is an interesting industry to be in. Um, But I was part of the first class at the Flatiron School in New York. Um, So the intensive program there, um, where I was working with a group of like-minded people, just uh, starting our journey into programming. Um, And yeah, so, you know, previous to that, I was just, uh, you know, I, I spent about a year Kind of falling in love with programming, getting into Ruby, um, and I was able to uh, luckily find this program that had just uh, uh, popped onto the scene and get in there. Um, so after that program, yeah, just got into the New York City uh, tech community. Um, had a couple jobs, mostly mostly writing Ruby. Um, and in uh, what was it 2016? Uh, I was working for a company and we uh, had some hackathons. Uh, opportunities to kind of play with new different tools and you know Elixir was just uh, coming into my radar and we had um, a consultant um, that was working with us that was uh, heavily in the community and uh, so we decided to give it a go and built a kind of like this standalone transactional email service um, running in Elixir and you know as hackathons within companies uh, you know typically prove out is that a, it's fun to you know spend some time hacking on some new tooling and some new languages, but it's even better when something actually turns into something that you roll into production. Um, so that was my first kind of um, my first kind of access into Elixir and the Beam. Uh, and then from there, I was just kind of poking around and uh, stumbled upon nerves, and you know got the 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 blinky hello world going. It got super excited there. And then shortly after that, I, I got uh, found an opportunity um, speaking with an old friend of mine that was a, a recruiter uh, in New York. And she was talking about this company, this this farming company um, that was getting off the ground and you know that they were using Elixir. I was like, wait, what? There's there's companies that are doing farming and they're using Elixir? It's was like, please, please get me in front of these people. Um, and so I, uh, after a few conversations was lucky enough to join um, the early team at Bowery, um, so I've been with the company for almost four years now, um, and it's just great, like getting in and the the having the opportunity to write Elixir full time uh, as my job was was really exciting for me. And the, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the use cases that we're using at Bowery. But um, yeah, that was that was my journey so far. Um, now I'm you know kind of leading teams that are focusing on physical automation and building out new farms and uh still dabbling as much as i can uh, getting into getting into the code
0: that's awesome thanks for that how about you nick
4: yeah uh so similar to kmac uh i am i'm also self-taught um i actually got into computer science uh not from the computer languages background but from the human languages background i have a background in, uh, in foreign language um and really enjoyed uh in college and previously like learning uh, new human languages. I always thought that like the idioms and the little like water that we all mentally swim in when it comes to language was like really fascinating um, and like conceptualizes, you know, or really shapes the way that we model the world in our brains. And um when I uh, like graduated college, I thought I was going to go into a kind of like international business background. And so I started teaching myself Python as like a uh, a an analytical tool to apply to a masters. And absolutely uh, got nerd sniped and fell in love with programming and like programming languages and found like this whole other avenue to exp- to like explore um, my interest in like how do people think about knowledge um and uh i ended up uh working in uh for a number of startups um, actually overseas in uh, kind of uh so fr- first started with python then did some work in ruby and javascript and my roommate, who was also a self-taught programmer, uh, got uh, was very interested in Haskell at the time. So I also got some very early exposure to Haskell and functional programming and found especially that as a beginner, um, the type of guidance that the compiler provided uh, that some people might find really frustrating, I actually found really useful as like a teaching tool when I was very early on. Um, and so like, that kind of, was kind of like my first exposure to like functional idioms. Uh, like what is a pure function? Why might it be useful? And then I I moved to New York and, uh, started working for Railshop that had really good, engineering leadership in terms of like team processes, like pairing, uh, code review. And so kind of got exposure to like, how does building software with other people, uh, tend to look like, that was pretty like standard web development, uh, type of stuff. And I started getting interested in distributed systems um, from going to a number of meetups in New York, including the Erlang and the Elixir meetups. There I learned of a company that was basically building a chat platform, um, basically middleware for call centers. They do a lot more than that, but that was like one of their early products. And uh, I was intrigued at the opportunity to be able to learn more about distributed systems and work in Erlang. So I joined that team and was really, again, fell in love with all the observability that that platform provides. So I kind of got into Elixir by way of Erlang and uh, really enjoyed being able to see like, okay, what, which processes are using what memory, uh, what sockets are they sitting on top of? And once I kind of got a taste of that, I, uh, I I really wanted to learn how to work with this platform more and learn more about it. I then did a batch at the Recurse Center, which is a coding retreat, uh, similar to like a writer's retreat for programmers. Um, that's self-directed where everyone there is picking their own uh, area of computer science they would like to learn more about. And I really want to learn more about Haskell. So I built a BitTorrent client in Haskell. And uh, one of my batchmates there used to work with one of the engineering leaders at Bowery. And uh, I was complaining at the time about uh, how to solve a problem with Haskell channels that, that I knew how to solve with Erlang process registries. And uh, he was like, "Well, if if you're if, if that's a toolkit that you're familiar with, you should probably talk to Bowery Farming because um, doing a lot of really awesome stuff over there. And really, um, seeing the farm for the first time was like really what sold me on joining the team. And uh, building building those types of solutions with Elixir was uh, really the cherry on top.
0: Awesome. No, no no direct paths for you, Nick. You get you None. you sideways into everything." <laughs>
3: Yeah, bring, bringing folks to the farm and, and showing uh, that we can turn on and off lights uh, and visually see those and watching things move around is always the, the number one selling point that we have when we have new engineers uh, joining the team. Um, it's really There's nothing like really just getting in there and seeing the tools that you're building actually working in, in real life.
0: Yeah, I definitely got to take you up on that farm tour soon. So I want to move into some of the um, how you're using Elixir um, I want to take a step back and say, I think that this is probably one of the a really important project that I'm happy is being worked on. Um, food security is a thing that is kind of near and dear to my heart. For the listeners, like I left New York City to buy some land so I could farm my own food, um, at least learn how. Uh, I think it's really important. I think it's really important for us as a uh, species to figure out how to get food locally. Really excited at sort of the model of building these uh farms close to distribution Mm -hmm. hubs there's a lot that you guys are doing right so i want to just kind of like celebrate that i think it's really really good and very very cool back to the elixir stuff i want to kind of hear about exactly you know how are you using elixir um is it just a couple of of you know management web pages that are you know with live view maybe or you guys you know really really deep into uh the nerves automation talking about about exactly how you use elixir
3: i'll start with that one so um, the decision to use elixir obviously predated me because i joined the team because they were using elixir um, but the the kind of the founding technology team within the organization was using the like the original kind of mvp of what we call the bowery os was was built on rails um, but we you know there was and that was like building uis typical uh you know full stack uh, but really not a lot of like operating the farms and machinery and things like that and you know they there was a decision to use elixir because of of the versatility within it and i think nerves was a big part of that um wanted to get into having devices that can do some controlling and sensing and then also while also still building kind of these these user interfaces for our farmers and employees within the farm to be able to perform different tasks and and you know manage the crops life cycle Uh, and those, I think, were the main drivers uh, initially. But we've really evolved since then, and really um, have found that like the beam and Elixir has been a great use case for things, you know, even beyond just building UIs and building, uh, you know, management layers and you know, writing for uh, embedded firmware. We're leveraging Elixir for all sorts of things, you know, clustering between the, the farms and different other different types of machine integrations, like automation or uh, industrial automation machines. Uh, without getting into too much detail. Um, but uh, I would say that a large portion of what we consider to be our battery OS is running on Elixir. Now we also have like, you know, data services and um, our robotics and automation. So there's a lot that goes into what, you know, operating the farm. But from a pure software standpoint, a large majority of it is is currently running within Elixir. And that's apps that are distributed both in the cloud and on-premise.
1: So I have sort of like a standard follow-up question that I really love to ask our guests who come on and talk to us about, you know, actually using Elixir practically in their organizations, Um, especially for your guys' use cases. I'm really curious to hear about what Elixir wins you in these scenarios, you know, why is there so much Elixir that you guys are working with?
4: I think, um, Kevin, if you don't mind, uh, Go for it. I think there's there's a few different areas one is um and Joe Armstrong talks about this talked about this in a number of his conference talks about how the actor model really provides a good um runtime concurrency abstraction when you are dealing with um physical processes at some level like you know Processing plants and producing is a, at the end of the day a physical process that involves actual entities. Really, Elixir gives us good primitives to be able to model concurrency in that system where it exists. And also allows for us to give in a way that if we were to do that in other ecosystems, I think it would not, it would result in code that's less straightforward. Another area that I think is also really advantageous is real time features um, that are built into a lot of the. Uh, libraries like Phoenix and PubSub um, have also been really made it, made certain features that provided a lot of value easy to achieve with a team of our size, which might not have been the case for other ecosystems. And then finally, I guess two more things. A lot of things we kind of take for granted for working in Elixir are actually pretty killer features um, just for general like maintainability. Things like and I know this sounds very basic, but the fact that you can catch many typos um, b- by just ensuring that your program compiles in is not something that you can necessarily take for granted in all ecosystems, especially ones that prioritize like productivity. And I think that Liquidst checks a really great balance between both uh, providing like a reasonable amount of static analysis checks of like is this a program. Um, without necessarily like some of the heavy heavy weight, without all of the rigor that might not always be required for certain features. And then finally, I think that the quality of the libraries um, like Ecto and Phoenix provide a really good balance uh, between providing high-level APIs that are very easy to get new people onboarded with while still providing really good escape hatches so that if you want to use a feature that is like custom to... The database that you happen to be using you have the ability to do that without it looking like something you need to apologize for there are ways to like kind of slough off layers of your abstractions to get the good bits of whatever tools you're using
3: yeah and also like um again like going back to the the versatility of the ecosystem right from early on we didn't have to have specialized skills to be writing embedded software i, I think uh, um Justin Sneck, who was, who was one of the co-authors of, of NERVS, uh, I remember uh, mentioned in a talk that, uh, you know, NERVS was brought about because in a way that can trick, you know, web developers into being embedded systems engineers, right? And so we, we really took that to heart early on and for to have a lean team and we've been very, you know, we've uh, uh, intentionally been a, a small focused team that, that has a, a broad scope of responsibility. That we're able to onboard engineers, and you know, with the, the first-class um, nature of X Docs um, and having like really great documentation, that we can have people onboard um, quickly and get up to speed, uh, and really be contributing across the stack here at Bowery, um, you know, using common tools that that um, that we all know. And uh, you know, shout out to. Uh, like elixir school um sophie we've when, we, when we're onboarding engineers we point them right to there and you know we awesome. see you and, and others that are that are um there's a lot of great content there and you know just having that ability to onboard engineers and, and you know getting to be productive and then really getting them to really be excited about what they're working on too right so uh, we we've hired um you know plenty of the folks on our team have not had a background in um, Elixir or Beam. Uh, you know, we take Python developers and, and turn them into Elixir developers. And to see them really getting excited about this and um, getting excited not only about uh, Elixir itself, but really you know, taken to heart uh, um, with uh, functional programming, um, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been very nice.
1: Yeah, I'm not definitely not surprised to hear any aspect of the answer, but I think the one that I'm especially interested to dig into and I I think maybe our co-host will agree is this concept of taking a regular web developer, right? Maybe not even an Elixir engineer like you said you're hiring Python engineers, what have you, and sort of secretly turning them into embedded systems engineers. I think is really really powerful. Um, But before we sort of dig into some more of that good stuff around Elixir and embedded systems, I do want to dive in deeper to some of the first couple of reasons, Nick, that you mentioned that Elixir was really benefiting you guys. And you talked about concurrency and uh, real time. And that's something that a lot of people will talk about really often when they talk about pitching Elixir, especially to larger organizations, but sometimes it's hard for the, that reasoning to really find purchase in some of those larger orgs, folks who feel like, well, I, I'm doing without some of those benefits right now, do I really need them? Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your concurrency and real-time stories within the work that you do.
4: Yeah, so I think uh, touching on real-time first, one thing that I think people maybe have gotten used to, um, but which uh, once you experience not needing to be used to it, it's hard to go back from, is seeing a page that is reflecting is intended to reflect like the current state of some other system that's outside the context of your own web browser, and having that physical device, let's say you have a device that's healthy, and it someone unplugs it, uh, having the web page actually reflect that state as the event is occurring can be really important for streamlining physical workflows. Um, and can also really increase the amount of confidence that the users of those UIs have that the data they're looking on the page is actually correct. And so I think that for systems, especially that are interfacing with the physical world, where there is observable physical state that you know someone sitting next to the thing can see, yep, it is in that state. The light is red, and but the web page is telling me that it's green. Uh, saying, "Could you please refresh the page?" does not elicit confidence. Versus if uh, they are looking at the physical. At, at the device, and it's green, and the web page also says it's green, and they unplug it, and the web page goes red, that also elicits a lot of confidence and really helps make that tool much more effective. So I think that once you go real-time, um, obviously not every single feature needs to be real-time, but once you go real-time, you I think it's really clear to see where there's a lot of end-user benefit by building, um, by just having the tools to make it real-time with not a ton of effort.
1: Once you go real-time, you you don't go back. You don't want to go back. Once you start, let's say, working with LiveView and you realize that any random thing you're building can really easily integrate that real-time functionality, why would you not have that at your fingertips?
3: Right, yeah, when we're talking about plants, because here we are talking about plants, right? Uh, Plants need water to survive, right? They need light to survive. They need to be in an optimal environment for them to be able to grow to their fullest potential, right? And then when you're building tools for people that are running a farm, right? They need to know what's happening real time. They, you know, we need to know that, yes, the lights are on right now or they're not on, are they supposed to be on? Um, you know, is the irrigation running? Is it not running? Why is it not running? And so we need to have that feedback very quickly and we need to be able to gather that from a cluster um, of devices that are, that are running throughout the farm. And so having that real-time updates and having the concurrency to pull all the data from these disparate devices um, is, a, is a real win for us.
1: Yeah, it and, really seems like, um, from what you guys are saying, it really reminds me when Joe Armstrong would talk about the actor model, he talked about how he felt like object orientation didn't actually capture an accurate model of reality of the world and this idea of like passing messages between actors felt to him like a more realistic model of the world that we move within. And when we're dealing with embedded systems, when you're dealing with things that, you know, physically exist in the world and not just programs, you know, in, in our machines, um, it feels like the reality of those statements like feels much more immediate.
4: Building on top of um, of your point, Sophie, I think that when people hear the term distributed systems, they think of you know distributed databases or you know uh, Kafka clusters or Cassandra. And I think that really uh, when, when, especially when integrating with the physical world, like you see when you do have some exposure to those systems, you also see the exact same problems in everything from like web UIs to industrial automation. Uh, Cause really like the fundamental constraints of you never actually know what's on the other end of the network boundary. Um, you just know the last state that it told you about. And I think that especially for representing dependencies between components at the farm, especially when have you tried turning it off and on again is like a valid restart strategy for recovery. OTP gives really good primitives for doing that. We're able to supervise our dependencies Um, Another thing is that OTP lets us build systems that have less operational overhead. Um, So for certain systems, if you have the ability to, for example, run software that doesn't need uh, persistent storage, um, that can be a very nice property for your system if, for example, you'd like for the hardware that it's running on to fail and be automatically rescheduled somewhere else. You know, the failure semantics of that system are going to be simpler than if the state on disk is, is important. Obviously, nothing is free. Being able to robustly like keep state in memory um, and rehydrate it when needed um, has been a really useful tool for quickly delivering features with minimal operational overhead.
2: So are you saying like the nerves device are uh nervous devices are treated more like uh like cattle as opposed to pets? And that you know, there's redundancy in the system. So if nerves nerves devices fail, which should never happen because nerves is you know awesome and uh, you know, devices and hardware never fail. But if they do fail, there's redundancy and you kind of fall back to, you know, a second or third uh device in the in the uh like chain of command there.
3: Yeah, I think um, you know, there's the, there's the the benefits of having uh, you know these devices to be ephemeral, right? Where when they boot up, they don't need to know anything about themselves, right? And they can get their state from from our up, from an upstream system, right? Uh, so that it, it allows us to have well, a dumb device, right? Where you can just plug it in anywhere, and uh, you know we'll get it'll boot up, self-identify, get its state. And that state is is held in memory, right? We we you can heavily leverage something like ETS to grab state from the cloud, and then start operating and have multiple processes that are that are uh, that are referencing what the current state should be against what the hardware is actually doing right now, and make any adjustments that are needed. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's more of we can just kind of hot swap devices um, as needed, and then they just kind of self heal. Yeah,
2: that's really cool. So. If you don't mind me asking how do you guys deal with deployments you use uh nerves hub and uh you know how does that story kind of look
3: so we're we're leveraging a few tools for for deployment um we have some cloud services that we use and it's funny early on um the deployment fleet management was engineers right so we would you know luckily like a, the, the the tooling that you get with nerves with the uh, with flop or um nerves ssh allows for Uh, many different ways to to get new versions of firmware onto the devices Um, and we've kind of we've evolved that into using different cloud services Uh, we have dabbled in in nerves hub um, and we're still there's still some uh, architecture that we're advancing there Uh, but I would say the tooling that we get with nerves not only from being able to deploy but also manage the devices so some of the the great uh, things that are that are available such as like Toolshed to have uh, run different types of commands on the device. Um, Ring Logger has been fantastic to be get for uh, real-time uh, debug ability, um, as well as on top of their typical tools like Observer um, has been, you know, a- allows us to really get a lot of the information at the system level as well as the, the state that we need to be getting from devices. So it's a really fantastic tool set of tooling for debugging and seeing what's going on with devices
2: that's really cool and then uh since i'm a huge fan of observability and and monitoring i'm curious how you guys uh like keep track of the you know the health of devices do you do like um do you have like a central prometheus instance that collects uh, metrics from all these things uh you know are you are you pushing up events like how does that uh story look
3: yeah, we we we'll, we push events to central logging services as well as using uh, telemetry and statsd just to get system metrics and events that are that are pulled in. And then we have other tools where we can combine all these uh, these data sources into dashboards that give us the ability to alert when devices are down or in a healthy unhealthy state. That we can kind of uh, either have engineers going in and and uh, debugging, or also we have teams of throughout our farms of uh, facilities folks that can get in there as well that are very technical and, and figure out what's going on. So we're providing tools not only for ourselves, but we're able to provide tools for uh, for operators that are physically at the farms to you know help debug themselves.
4: In terms of the observability and debugging story, I can say that everywhere that we run Elixir, um, the following uh, tools are really extremely high leverage and that's telemetry as well as the fantastic libraries that have come up recently around telemetry like telemetry metrics, they'll let you decouple both the handlers for your different telemetry events and have those be decoupled from where you're piping those events into Um, and also um, being able to easily emit your own telemetry events so for example. We had an issue where there was a dependency that was not managing its resource pool super well. We were able to like very quickly, not only pa- like identify the issue um, using a combination of telemetry events and also the observer CLI tool, which is uh, basically uses the baked in Erlang VM observability APIs to give a very similar interface to the GUI observer, but just with, from within uh, IEX. Uh, and then also put in monitoring to monitor the resource pool, so that if you know if there was ever a regression or another issue with that dependency, we could identify it in real time. And so yeah, the the observability story has been like a very win of lo- a very big win for very few lines of code, for a lot of observability, which also helps with onboarding. You know, if you want to really help show someone like how does the system work or what are the fundamental constraints that they should be aware of, like having the ability to, to define those types of hooks. Is really useful
2: yeah i definitely want a plus one uh, observability cli and we're having an issue in production and the best way was just get a remote iex session in see what the heck is going on with the observer cli and then just you know uh i think we were like leaking binaries so then i just use recon to to clear all the binaries and it was a huge win and it's like you you don't get this in a lot of other runtimes and languages like uh you know fix things on the fly uh, you know, deal with the hot fix later after you know after um, you know, core business hours. So that's 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 really awesome that the same exact story that we see, like on the you know web services side kind of translates one to one on the embedded and then nerve side. So that's really cool.
0: so I want to go for fair and balanced here. We're all big fans of the Beam and Elixir, and we're all having a love fest. Um, I think that there's a a particularly difficult thing that you're dealing with, which is the physical layer, right? It's very difficult to turn on and off again the world unless you have some sort of biblical powers. Um, what's what's been hard about this process of having not just devices, but devices spread across any number of your farms. I mean I think you have one in Austin, you've got one in Pennsylvania, you've got one in Carney, New Jersey. So you're 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 talking pretty distributed distances and how do you sort of manage when things inevitably break and you just, the way to fix it is just to be in front of the device.
3: Yeah, I think, um, that, that gets outside of, uh, of, of, you know, the conversations that we're talking here, leveraging the the language. And I think that's more around like the processes that you have within, within your organization, right. And identifying roles and responsibilities and having, um, you know, technical stakeholders on the ground that can help, um, help us to kind of triage and, and identify issues and then figuring out whether we need to swap a device. Do we need to have somebody there that's just um, swapping a peripheral, right? Um, and so it's really around tight coordination organizationally uh, and then building the tools uh, that allow for that. Uh, and then also some fun, different like hacky projects. Um, you know, our you know, devices are all typically running POE and so having the ability to, to identify where a device is plugged in and you know, leveraging APIs or building, building tooling that allows you to uh, kind of power cycle remotely, um, whether that's through the device or through user interfaces. And that was another, that's another win with, uh, with Nerves and you know, with, with Uboot and Bootloader where you, know, you can add in these Linux packages into your, your build system, um, that allows you to run, um, uh, uh, different commands. So we're, we're able to run, a, like a TCP dump command to be able to identify where is this device plugged into. And then that allows us then to manage that a little remotely as well.
4: I think also the, uh, the hard problem that you mentioned, is a physical device that's in the physical farm. There are, you know, things that can go wrong at every level of that chain. Um, is really just modeling your failure scenarios and then having a plan for how to recover from those failure scenarios and de- to degrade gracefully. Um, which is, I know that this was supposed to be the the uh, the respite from the OTP Erlang elixir love fest, but I think that like really just having the primitives to be able to express that um, at least at the level of like a single a single system or a or a cluster of system of of VMs uh, is really useful. Uh, so it's basically just defining your blast radius. When X is down, how do we bring it back up? Whether that's a device or a higher level.
0: Okay. So it looks like you guys have, uh, Phoenix web apps, you have nerves going, um, from a, there was a 2018 talk, uh, by Sam, uh, Sam Swift, uh, who's called, titled AI farming, 100 times the yield, the data team of one. They mentioned that you use Python for some of the machine learning stuff. Just to kind of give a, a gross simplification of what the talk covered, um, we'll leave it in the show notes if you want to watch it. Um, the idea is that if if your what you're growing is not where it needs to be, then you sort of like use machine learning to figure out that it's not where it needs to be. Do we have to give it more water, more nutrients? Sort of like cycle it, move it to a different uh, different place, more air, whatever whatever the variables are that that grow plants. Um, is there any is there any work going towards looking at using some of the native Elixir machine learning modeling and kind of like porting that over Um, or it works in Python and, you know, calling out to leave it alone?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, And I think, you know, we have a very talented team of, uh, uh, with our, our data and AI team of machine learning engineers and computer vision engineers. And, you know, we... Each team has their own tooling. And so they're running you know, a lot of these models, you know, using Python and, and other tools. You know, there is certainly opportunity to you know, uh, bring some of that closer to the edge and nothing is off the table on what, uh, you know, how, we're, how we're going to be advancing you know, computer vision and, and AI within Bowery.
0: So I wanted to talk a little bit about your, I guess your hiring process. Um, so you you guys are not a remote company.
1: Asking for
0: uh, a friend. As, <laughs> everybody calm down. <laughs> um, my team is listening to this thing. What wait, hold on, what? Um uh, no, well, you're not a remote company. Um, and that has benefits, but also, you know, some issues as well. The big benefit is if you're not a remote company, you get that benefit of synchronous work and being together. Um, you know, focusing on one problem, pivoting more quickly, I'd argue. Um, but one downside is you might not have access to the widest pool of talent. Like uh, that you would if you were just fully remote and allowed anyone to be anywhere. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're um, you know you're you're raising basically converting Python developers and converting them into Elixir developers. Talk to me about some of what that looks like. So what is your what do you hire for? I mean, like what are the skills that you see are most transmit you know transmutable to an Elixir developer? And then also, what's your process, and like how do you set people up for success?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting challenge that you're in and yes, we are hiring. So uh, anybody uh, plug, anybody that's interested in joining Barry, uh, you know, find us, reach out. Um, but yeah, we are, we are a, um, a uh, in-person first company. You know, we, we have flexibility and um, are in a hybrid mode as, as I think many, many organizations are right now. Um, but it does pose a challenge, right? Like there's many, many excellent, Elixir engineers all across the world—not just in the United States, but you know, across the many different time zones in the world—that um, you know, by focusing mostly in New York City, right, we very much narrow down the uh, the availability of Elixir expertise that is also um, location constraint. Um, and so, what we look for, and you know, I, I I say this a lot when I'm talking to to candidates and and other people is. Like the the main thing that somebody is going to be successful, you know, at Bowery and what we really look for is having a the combination of ownership and curiosity, right? And so like the ownership to take the part of your system that you're responsible for and really own that and drive forward and really, you know, taking that as your baby and you're the steward of that, uh, but not, but having the curiosity of like focusing, not just laser focus on that, but seeing how you can, how you can um impact other areas, not only within the the technology team, but you know, how you can leverage the tools and your expertise to help out people in agricultural science and, and the research and development that they're doing and the facilities teams and operations, there's there's uh environmental controls and just keeping your eye uh, the peripherals of of what's gonna what's happening within the organization. I think from a from a technical standpoint, right, again, when it comes to the curiosity that uh you know, Somebody's always learning. Like we're we have a culture of learning here, and so somebody that's just really excited about learning new tooling and new ways of 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 you know expressing themselves and and achieving these goals, um, that's what really makes someone successful there. And so there's a base level of like you know obviously technical aptitude that we're that we're looking for, and you know somebody that that comes into Thowery usually successful when they've had exposure to distributed systems, they've had exposure to embedded systems, they've had exposure to simulation and emulation. Um, those are all types of things that we're looking for. And then as far as onboarding, again, really, um, you know, uh, pairing with buddies and, you know, the, the vast uh, resources that are in the ecosystem we mentioned earlier, Elixir School, um, but even just like the hex docs, you know, you can really kind of jump in and, and 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 get up to speed rather quickly, just j- jumping into the docs. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of a lot of pairing and a lot of uh, you know documentation that we have to help people get up to speed.
4: Another another aspect that I think is really critical for uh, really anyone at Bowery, not just software engineers, is um, the ability to uh, is systems thinking that goes beyond your specific tool set. Certainly every, uh, like company that I've ever worked at prior to this one was at some level software talking to other software and the criteria for success is these two pieces of software agree. Cool. We're all good. Um, and that is, uh, not always the case when it comes to physical systems. Uh, there's a lot of other like domains of expertise, civil engineers, mechanical agricultural scientists that uh, have a lot of knowledge. And a lot of problems are not only solvable with software and it requires effective collaboration with those groups as well.
2: Uh, as a quick follow-up, for people learning Elixir for the first time, what are some of the like, pitfalls or landmines, if you will, of, uh, of learning Elixir, you know, maybe as a first language or you know, even as a second or third language that maybe you want to call out to help uh, you know, people down the road?
3: I would say that some of the big benefits that we, we get in this ecosystem is around the concurrency models, right, and um, and getting into, you know, like uh, working with with Gen servers and Gen event and all these different things. I think a word of caution that I ha- would have is like understanding the fundamentals of the the syntax and the language and the thing, the you know, the benefits that you're getting from, you know, pattern matching and and piping and the tooling around it, and not really first at first jumping into all the benefits that you're getting from concurrency, right? Um, and I find that um, folks in my experience and my, my personal experience when uh, learning Elixir is, I was like, oh, I'm gonna use a gen server for everything, right? Um, and most of what you can can achieve is, can be in a single process, right? And so leveraging the power that you have with concurrency but not overutilizing that, uh, that you find yourself you know, in a few months from now getting yourself into a a, a a tricky situation where you have to now manage the state across all of these different processes. Exactly, it's
4: mixing domain modeling with concurrency modeling. Uh, so we have to separate as possible.
1: All right, well, thank you so much for that. And thanks for that final question, Alex. Um, sadly, we're running out of time. I feel like we could easily keep talking about this probably for hours and hours, but Kevin and Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I will ask you guys if our listeners want to reach out to you or want to learn more about what y'all are doing. Do you have a preferred way for them to do that?
3: Uh, yeah. So thank you very much for for having us. Um, I can be reached at Twitter, which is uh, my handle is Kev Macaroni, one word. Um, and then you can also email me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Any anyway, um, I, I'll drop the, sh- the email in the show notes, I guess. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for having us. This has been uh, been a really fun conversation for me. Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
4: I'm also on Twitter, uh, not very active, but uh, I can be found at at Sanford underscore Nick and also LinkedIn. I'll put them in the show notes and then GitHub as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you both. Um, I will actually give one shout out and one encouragement hopefully, Kevin, to both you and, and Nick. Uh, Code Beam America is coming up in San Francisco in early November. We're about to open the CFP. The Call for Talks is gonna open, I think, next Friday, the 25th. Um, I've just been so fascinated by so much of what we were able to discuss today. So if either of you or if anybody else on your team uh, is interested in sharing a talk submission, definitely check out the CFP, which will open shortly. I'll put it in the show notes. And if either of you guys, like I said, or anyone on your team is interested and wants to bounce around ideas or talk more, uh, reach out to me, I would love to talk about it. I am also on Twitter. I'll put that in the show notes as well, or you can you know, follow up with the folks you were already emailing about today to get in touch. I would love to see some submissions from from you guys. I think there's so much there to dig into and so much there to share with the wider Elixir community. Um, and of course, that always goes for our listeners in general. Call for Talks for Code America is opening up soon. Check it out, think about submitting. Um, would be really cool to see some of our listeners there. So once again, thank you, Kevin and Nick. Thanks, Steven, for setting this up and Alex for your excellent co-hosting duties. And one more thank you and shout out to our sponsor, Graxio, which is career fuel for programmers. And with that, we will catch you guys next time on BEAM Radio.